All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories, all glories to Shishi Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Ajnana Timirandasya Janajana Shalakaya Chakshul Miditam Jaina Tasmai Shri Guruve Namaha. I was born in the darkest ignorance and my spiritual master opened my eyes with the torch of knowledge. I offer my respectful obeisances unto him. Shri Chaitanya Manovistam Sapitam Jenabutale Swayam Rupa Kadamayam Tadatit Swapadantikam. When will Srila Rupa Goswami Prabhupada, who has established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of Lord Chaitanya, give me shelter under his lotus feet? Vancha Kalpa Turubhyascha Kripasindubhyevacha Patitanam Pavanebhyo Vaishnavebhyo Namonamaha. I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the Lord. They are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone, and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls. Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaurabhakta Vrinda. I offer my respectful obeisances unto Shri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, Lord Nityananda, Shri Advaita, Gadadhar Pandit, Shri Thakur, and all the devotees of Lord Chaitanya. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. I pray that Sri Radha Kalashanji, Srila Prabhupada, Srila Gurudev, use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me and give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, August 10th, 2021. I'm Jay Sri Radha Devi Dasi, and I'm reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 1, Creation, Chapter 9, The Passing Away of Bhishma Dev in the Presence of Lord Krishna, Text 8. Anyacha Munyayo Brahman Brahmarata Dayodmala Shishya Rupeta Ajagmu Kashyapangirashadaya Anyecha Munayo Brahman Brahma Rata Dayomala Isherupeda Jagmu Kasya Pangara Sadaya Anya Many others Sha also, Munaya, sages, Brahman, O Brahmanas, Ramarata, Sukadev Goswami, Adaya, and such others, Amala, 
completely purified. Shishya, by the disciples. Upeta, accompanied. Ajagmu, arrived. Kashyap, Kashyap. Angirasha, Angirasha. Adaya, others. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. And many others like Sukadev Goswami and other purified souls, Kashyap and Angirasa and others, all accompanied by their respective disciples, arrived there. Purport. Sukadev Goswami, Brahmarata, the famous son and disciple of Sri Vyasadev, who taught him first the Mahabharata and then Srimad Bhagavatam. Sukadev Goswami recited 1.4 million verses of the Mahabharata in the councils of the Gandharvas, Yakshas, and Rakshasas, and he recited Srimad Bhagavatam for the first time in the presence of Maharaj Parikshit. He thoroughly studied all the Vedic literatures from his great father. Thus, he was a completely purified soul by dint of his, ex- of his extensive knowledge in the principles of religion. From Mahabharata Sabha Parva 4.11, it is understood that he was also present in the royal assembly of Maharaj Yudhisthir and at the fasting of Maharaj Pariksit. As a bona fide disciple of Sri Vyasadeva, he inquired from his father very extensively about religious principles and spiritual values. And his great father also satisfied him by teaching him the yoga system by which one can attain the spiritual kingdom, the difference between fruitive work and empiric knowledge, the ways and means of attaining spiritual realization, the four ashrams, namely the student life, the householder lives, the retired life, and the renounced life, the sublime position of the Supreme Personality of Godhead, the process of seeing him face to face, the bona fide candidate for not receiving knowledge, the consideration of the five elements, the unique position of intelligence, the consciousness of the material nature and the living entity, the symptoms of the self-realized soul, the working principles of the material body, the symptoms of the influential modes of nature, the tree of perpetual desire, and psychic activities. Sometimes he went to the sun planet with the permission of his father in Naradaji. Descriptions of his travel in space are given in the Santa Parva of the Mahabharata, 332. At last he attained the transcendental realm. He is known by different names like Aranea, Arunisutta, Vaishaki, and Vyasa Maja. Kashyap, one of the Prajapatis, the son of Marichi and one of the son-in-laws of the Prajapati Daksha. He is the father of the gigantic bird Garuda, who is given elephants and tortoises as eatables. He married 13 daughters of Prajapati Daksha, and their names are Aditi, Diti, Danu, Kasta, Arishta, Surasha, Ila, Muni, Krodhavasha, Tamra, Surabhi, Sarama, and Timi. He begot many children, both demigods and demons, by those wives. From his first wife, Aditi, all the twelve Adityas were born. One of them is Vaman. Vamana, the incarnation of the Godhead. This great sage, Kashyap, was also present at the time of Arjuna's birth. He received a presentation of the whole world from Parusharam, 
And later on, he asked Parusharama to go out of the world. His other name is Aristanemi. He lives on the north, northern side of the universe. Angirasha. He is the son of Maharash Angira, Maharishi Angira, and is known as Brihaspati, the priest of the demigods. It is said that Dronacharya was his partial incarnation. Sukracharya was his was the spiritual master of the demons, and Brihaspati challenged him. His son is Gacha, and he delivered the fire weapon first to Bharadvaj Muni. He begot six sons like the fire god by his wife Chandramasi, one of the reputed stars. He could travel in space, and therefore he could present himself even in the planets of Brahmaloka and Indraloka. He advised the king of heaven, Indra, about conquering the demons. Once he cursed Indra, who thus had to become a hog on earth and was unwilling to return to heaven. Such is the power of the attraction of the illusory energy. Even a hog does not wish to part with its earthly possessions in exchange for a heavenly kingdom. He was the religious preceptor of the natives of different planets. So we are now into chapter 9, and we're reading about Bishmadev passing away. Bishmadev was given a special boon of being able to leave his body whenever he deemed possible. And after the war, his body was severely beaten and injured, but he was still living because he had that boon. So, And he was waiting for the right moment to leave his body. And he wanted Krishna in his presence. And you can see that Bishmadev is such a great soul that so many people are coming to, to help him depart from this world. And here we learn about three such great personalities that come. And so we learn about um, Kashyap, Angirasa, and, and Sukadev Goswami. And it's a little bit meta because Sukadev Goswami is, you know, he's the one that recites the Srimad Bhagavatam to Maharaj Pariksit, and that's what we're reading. And now we're reading about him arriving, you know, he's a character in the in the story that we're reading, that he's actually reciting. So it's kind of meta there. Um, the interesting thing here is a couple of things, is that Sukadev Goswami is very learned, and he learned everything from his father, who's a spiritual master of Yasudev. And that's really the duty of a parent, is to help teach their children spiritual values and hope that they learn these values and you know, take the process of Krishna consciousness on their own. And so what does he teach them about? He teaches them about the yoga system by which one can attain the spiritual kingdom. And if we look through the list of all the things, and I'll list them in a second from the purport, basically it's the Bhagavad Gita is what he's teaching him, right? So the yoga system that can be anywhere from, you know, chapters 4, 5, and 6, where he's talking about the different types of yogas, and how we can attain liberation through all of them. He talks, you know, in chapter 5, he says, Krishna says, the yogis abandoning attachment act with body, mind, intelligence, and even with the senses only for the purpose of purification. So he's describing a certain type of, of yoga here. And then he teaches about the difference between fruit of work and empiric knowledge, and that's chapter 5 and 6 again. Um, the ways and means of attaining spiritual realization, which is the whole Bhagavad Gita, the four ashrams, 
the sublime position of the supreme personality of Godhead and the process of seeing him face to face. And that's the process of seeing him face to face. Again, it's the whole Bhagavad Gita, but that's basically the nine processes of devotional service. Um, hearing, chanting, serving, worshiping, honoring prasadam, all of the things that we tend to do together. He taught him about the bona fide candidate for receiving knowledge as well as the symptoms of the self-realized soul. And these are actually questions that Arjuna had asked Krishna. You know, what are the symptoms of a self-realized soul? Does anyone have any ideas of, or want to say a few things that you know about what's self-realized soul? What are some of the qualities? Huh? I couldn't hear. Humility? Compassion. Compassion. Truthfulness. Truthfulness. Right. These are all great qualities. Um, So the main things are the steadiness, right? Um, Regardless of happiness, distress, cold, heat, whatever's going on, a pure self-realized soul is always joyful. Um, and isn't affected by what's going on. They treat everyone equally. So friend, there's no friend or foe. They don't see any difference between a brahmana and a, um, a, an animal, a tree. Right? They see Krishna within everyone. And they realize the difference between the soul and the body. So they're not attached to material desires and material attachments. Because they realize that I'm spirit soul and I'm an eternal servant of Krishna, and therefore I don't have to be attached to the material world. They still work in the material world. That's where the difference between fruit of work and empiric knowledge comes in. So they're still going to do their activities, do their duties, but they're not going to be attached to the results of it. So they understand, the self-realized soul understands that I'm doing these activities because it's my duty, my dharma, but whatever reactions or whatever results come from them, that's up to Krishna. And that's a really t- difficult one, right? Because we want things to happen in a certain way. We have certain attachments of like, well, you know, I'll pick up something simple, right? I, I'm i uh, going for a walk, and so I expect that I'm going to have like a nice time. Um, I'm going to get some exercise. And so I go for that walk. But then I might meet up with someone and then we start talking. Or it might start raining. Or, you know, but the whole thing is that I'm doing my part of it. And the results of it, it's not really up to me. Another big example is like, you know, sometimes we plan a gathering or um, a party. And um, you want that party, you know, you want everyone to have fun. You want that party to go a certain way. Sometimes it doesn't go that way. Uh, I know one time I had a gathering, and it was a few friends, and we were planning on, I think we were just planning on hanging out, having prasadam, and then maybe watching a movie or something like that. And so I think the whole plans changed because something of the prasadam didn't work out, so we have to switch what we were going to eat. And then, like, the whole movie thing 
it didn't work out because we all just got busy talking and doing other things. And it was such a nice time. We had such a great time, but it wasn't like anything like we planned it to be. So if we were just attached, well, this is what we said, and, you know, I want it to be this way, then we would be more in anxiety. We might not have enjoyed the night as much as we did. And I notice that happens a lot for me as well, is that when I'm attached to a certain way of of things happening this way, I don't have a good time. I'm not enjoying myself. I don't get to be in the moment. And when I just kind of like, well, this is what's meant to happen, um, then it's more fun. You know, it flows better. Also, in terms of, you know, like if we used to have these Bhagavad Gita classes at the yoga center prior to pandemic, and you never know, you know we never know who's going to come, if anyone's going to come, because week to week it could be different. And I remember every week we would be like, oh, is anyone even going to come? And somebody always shows up, even if it's one or two people. And it's like the exact right persons that needed to be there and create an energy for that evening. You know, if we were all up in arms, only two people showed up, or, you know, there's ten people this week, and we expect that same result every time, it's, it wouldn't be, we wouldn't be as attentive to the people that were there, because we would be, like, in this mind of, oh, we want these people here, or, you know. So it's always good to realize that Krishna is in charge of everything, but we still have to do our duty. It's not that we just go, oh, well, I don't need to do anything because Krishna is in charge, therefore I'll just sit and chant japa all day long, which I pretty much couldn't do either, um, even if I wasn't doing anything else, because it's really difficult to, to control your mind like that. And that's why we have all these different ways of being able to see Krishna face-to-face um, and understanding Krishna is because we have so many material attachments. We have so many desires, not just from this lifetime, but from previous lifetimes. And we have so many, um, let's say, anarthas that to overcome. And anarthas are basically anything that keeps us away from Krishna, whether it's an object, whether it's a feeling, whether it's people. It's anything that kind of keeps us away from Krishna. And recently I was having a discussion with uh, Risetva Jaswami about trauma and how, how all of us have some levels of trauma whether it's overt, like, you know, being assaulted, or it's minor, something that someone said when we're growing up that may have affected us. Um, And so we all have these types of things that we're overcoming, and they get in the way of whatever type of progress we were trying to make, whether it's spiritual, material. And uh, we were discussing this uh, documentary, and in the documentary they said sometimes... If you have a lot of trouble remembering things from your childhood, it could be that there's a lot of trauma associated with it. So our mind automatically forgets the trauma so that we're not constantly feeling that pain, but we're still affected by it. And that's just from this lifetime. Can you imagine if you had to remember all the trauma of all previous lifetimes, how that would be? Like, it's... Um, you know, I've heard stories of people when they remember something, you know, they blocked it out, um, some type of abuse as a child that they blocked out and all of a sudden they remember it and they become totally incapacitated 
from that memory because they haven't processed it, they haven't dealt with it, and then all of a sudden it comes to them. And so we all have these things, and it's important to acknowledge that, that we have these things. It's not almost always necessary to remember or deal with each one, but to realize that we have these attachments and experiences and things like that that are coloring our view of the world currently. And if we acknowledge that, then we can start to say, okay, you know, in this moment when somebody says something to you and you get all angry and you react or, you know, you just, um, on the other side of it, like a pleasant, somebody says something and it brings out great memories and you want to have more of that, or, you know, like I always say, I'm addicted to TV, so there's something that I'm blocking out because I just like to drown my brain in TV for a while, you know. Um, and so there's there's different ways that we deal with the things that we don't want to deal with, the feelings that we don't want to feel, the thoughts that we don't want to have. And, you know, like I said, for me, it's TV. For some people, it's alcohol. Some people, it's drugs. Some people, it's sex. Some people, it's food. For me, it's also food. Um, <laughs> so we have different ways of dealing with this. And in some ways, which is actually a great way of dealing with it, we come to Krishna consciousness because we have all of these traumas and um, feelings that we want to process. We don't want to process. We don't want to deal with. But we also want to feel good. And a lot of the activities that we do in Krishna consciousness help us feel good. And that is one of the goals. We want it because we can't not feel, we can't not think. So it's important to feel in terms of Krishna, right? Feeling good in, when we're in Krishna's presence, being in front of the deities always cheers me up. I know for many of us during the whole pandemic, we weren't able to come to the temple. Fortunately, I wasn't one of those. I was coming to the temple regularly for my services. But for many of us, we weren't able to come to the temple. And when the temple finally opened up like a year later, I remember so many people were here that first couple of weeks, maybe that first month, because we all want to be in the presence of Radha Kalachanji, of the deities. It feels so good. It It's almost, you know, in a way healing because of the traumas that we experienced from last year, whether it's... Um, you know, for me, I always explain this, like I'm an extrovert. I love socializing, being around people. I feel energized by being around people. So to be locked up in my house by myself and not being able to go, like pre-pandemic, I always had some place that I was going every evening, whether it was like the Wednesday Darshan program or we had different programs, Sunday feast. You know, there's all these different things going on every evening that I was going to. And after the pandemic, like, that wasn't there, you know. So I had to seek out association in other ways, but there was a little bit of, quote-unquote, trauma, right? It was a little bit traumatic to not be able to associate and lose that avenue of energizing myself, of, you know, processing. Um, and so for other people, I mean, I've heard even from people that are introverts that don't really like a lot of people that the isolation was really difficult for them as well. So just on that level, the pandemic was difficult. What to speak of if you actually got COVID and were in the hospital or you knew someone that was in the hospital and you couldn't even go visit them 
um, or, you know, and they passed away in their hospital room all alone. And so many people had that experience as well. These are all things that we deal with in the material world that cause us pain and misery. And because there is some level of pleasure and we have this ability to block out pain, right? We don't remember um, traumas that we experience. You know, a lot of times, this is a joke, right? A lot of times women will say that at the time of childbirth, they would say they would never want to have a child again because it's so painful. But then a year or two later, they're like, oh, maybe we, you know, we could have it. It wasn't so bad. So they forget the pain and they have another child and, you know, and usually the second or third child, it's not as painful as the first, but it can be. Um, and so, you know, there's just different ways that we block out pain, but we don't necessarily block out pleasure. So when we feel good, we remember that. And when we feel pain, we try to forget that. And here, the Prabhupada gives the example of Indra becomes a hog and with just the little pleasures that he felt as being a hog, he didn't want to give that up because in that moment he didn't know about the pleasures of the heavenly kingdom. And, you know, I think Vyasadev had to come and remind him of it. Um, or was it Narada Muni that had to come and remind him of it? And then he was able to, like, go back and become the king of heaven again. So... Some of the different other things that we talked about. The unique position of intelligence is one of the things that Sukadeva Goswami discussed with his father. In Bhagavad Gita 729, it says, Intelligent persons who are endeavoring for liberation from old age and death take refuge in me in devotional service. They're actually Brahman because they entirely know everything about transcendental activities. Here and also in a few other places, Prabhupada says that this is the definition of intelligence, is knowing that we are not this body and that we are servants of Krishna and that to kind of detach ourselves from the material world and know that our transcendental position is in the spiritual world. That's a sign of true intelligence. And then, of course, we're always working against the principles of the material body and the symptoms of the influential modes of nature. And that's the modes of goodness, passion, and ignorance. And we all have some combination of those three at any time. Our goal is to transcend those modes, but it's easier to transcend those modes when we're in the mode of goodness. So we want to embody the qualities of the mode of goodness as much as we can. You know, we mentioned a few of them, truthfulness, humility, compassion... Um, equanimity, you know, whatever is happening it doesn't bother us. Um, not being attached to material desires. Um, and then attaching ourselves to Krishna is that transcendental part of it. In Bhagavad Gita 5.23, Krishna says, Before giving up this present body, if one is able to tolerate the urges of material senses and check the force of desire and anger, they are well situated and happy in this world. And that's really what we're, um, what we're discussing here, is 
how do we tolerate these urges of the material senses? And, you know, we know from Bhagavad Gita to 33, I think, or anyway, in chapter 2 of, you know, from anger, from attachment to material um, senses, lust develops, and then from, un, you know, unfulfilled lust, we get anger, and that leads to delusion, and that leads us to keep falling down, bewilderment, a memory, things like that. So we want to keep that anger and desire in check. And we're always going to have these feelings because that's part of it. So it's part of our nature is to desire and want things, to think about things, to want to feel joy and happiness. And so here with these two verses, what we're saying is that we are taking these material urges and making them spiritual by attaching them to Krishna, by saying, okay, the work that we're doing is for Krishna. Um, we know that we're not this body, so then everything that's happening to this body isn't really happening to me. It's happening to the outer shell, and we can separate our egos from it and understand that I'm servant of Krishna eternally. And so everything that I do is for him and start really meditating on Krishna and knowing, you know, his position, his activities, learning about him. Those are different ways that we can meditate on Krishna. And this is really interesting or unique because um, nowadays what we learn from our parents is maybe some levels of spiritual realization, spiritual teachings, but it's mostly... Um, how to get fruit of results, right? how to succeed, economic development, sense gratification, how to please ourselves in those ways. And so when we have that ability to teach children and teach the next generation that we have spiritual values, that we're Krishna's servant, and to teach about Krishna consciousness, it's important that we do so. In Bhagavad Gita 1833 and 1834, Krishna says that determination which is unbreakable, which is sustained with steadfastness by yoga practice, and which thus controls the activities of the mind, life, and senses, is determination in the mode of goodness. And so that's the first step that we want to have, is that we're steadfast, um, we're controlling the activities of the mind, life, and senses. On the other hand, that determination by which one holds fast to fruit of results in religion, economic development, and sense gratification is of the nature of passion. So really, we have these tendencies because we're in the material world. And we want to get to the point where we're not um, so attached to the material world. And, of course, japa really is the best way to do that. It's our time with Krishna. It's the time that we set aside and really um, chant attentively if we can. Find ways to chant attentively. I always share that, you know, one of the ways that I chant attentively is to walk around because otherwise my mind is racing a thousand thoughts a day or a thousand thoughts a minute, and then I'm like, oh, was I even chanting at that moment? Um, and if I'm in my house, then I see a ton of things that I need to do, and you know, my t- 
I start thinking of like, oh, well, I look at that mess over there. Let me clean that mess. So I actually walk outside, and I just kind of walk around my block because, one, I know my block, and I don't really have to be fully present walking. I mean, I have to pay some attention so that I don't crash into things. But it's enough that my mind is engaged in, you know, like that um, walking, but not really, I don't need to be fully attentive. But then my hearing and, and chanting can be really engaged because I can really focus on that. And I find it helps me much better. Now, for someone else, it might be that they want to sit in one place and have like a nice atmosphere, maybe some music, maybe incense, um, not like loud music, but like some, you know, calming, quiet music, pleasant music, things like that. Um, and they can chant more attentively that way. So we each have our different ways in which we know will engage our mind fully. We also have our ways that we know that we chant just because, um, because we need to chant and we want to get our rounds done. And I've been there too. Like I know um, when I was working, sometimes I would chant driving in the car. Sometimes, uh, you know, you get, um, especially if I'm sitting, I kind of just pull out my phone and I start scrolling through Facebook and then I'm like, what am I doing? I'm supposed to be chanting. Like it's almost absentmindedly that I do that because that's our habit. Um, and so, you know, again, that's why for me it's easier for me to be outside of the house and the phone is put away and I'm just walking. Whereas for someone else, like I said, you know, so it's like we know, we know when we're not chanting attentively and what we're doing to not foster attentive chanting. And we also know what we can do, or we can learn what we can do. We can try different ways, you know. Um, I know for me also, because I'm always sleep-deprived, that if I'm sitting in one place, there's a high likelihood that I'll fall asleep while chanting japa. So, you know, these are things that I know about myself, and so it's like I can counter these put countermeasures in place as much as possible that I can focus. And then hopefully one day I get to the point of, you know, um, chanting attentively without having to play all these tricks on my mind. Because that's really what we want to be, where we want to be. And so, you know, in the meantime, I play these tricks with our, with my mind. I'm more of this, of the uh, thought process of, you know, Pleasure is a great motivator. Pain, for me, may not always be. For some people, pain is a great motivator. Um, so, you know, it's like we think about the pain that we'll be in if we don't chant attentively, and that can be a motivation to start chanting attentively or chanting better rounds. But for me, it's more about, like, the pleasure that I feel when I chant attentively. Then it's like, oh, wow, remember when you did that, it felt so good. Let's do that again. And that becomes more of a motivator for me. And for years, I mean, I've, like I said, I've been in the habit of chanting inattentive rounds, and that's a habit that I need to break, and I'm intentionally working on breaking those habits. Um, I remember one conversation that I had with my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, one time, um, I had come to visit him when I was just starting medical school. 
and he asked me, um, are you able to chant? It's okay if you're not able to manage to do your 16 rounds. You know, um, you can make them up later, but he was asking me if I was able to chant. And I said, yes, um, Gurudev, I'm still chanting 16 rounds, not the best rounds. But he was so pleased. Like that look that he'd given me of just being so pleased that I was still chanting 16 rounds in the midst of my medical studies as well as residency just motivated me to do it every day, even even if I wasn't, if I was overly tired or if I was, it was late. I just always made sure that I chanted my rounds because I didn't want there to be a time where he asked me, are you still, you know, are you chanting your rounds? And have to say, no, I'm not. And I don't know if he would look disappointed because he, gave, he said that it would be okay if I didn't. Um, and so... For me, particularly, he was more interested in making sure at that time that I was getting the quantity of 16 rounds done, and that was the promise that I made. And so I got into this habit of just focusing on the number, and now I'm working on focusing on the quality. And that's a long process. I'd say I started that 12, 13 years ago of, of trying to switch from the quantity of 16 to the quality rounds. And I had to play tricks with myself again. Like, okay, just chant one round with, you know, without any distractions and then slowly increasing it. Still chanting 16, but working on increasing the number of rounds where I'm not distracted. And like I said, finding out that, you know, I can do it while walking made a big difference for me. Be able to chant 16 rounds in one go, and when I'm in that zone of chanting, it's so beautiful, so amazing. Like, there's so many realizations that come. Um, it truly does feel like a conversation with Krishna. And I'm going to say I'm not perfect, you know. there are, Even with the walking, there's still times where my mind is wandering, but it's just easier for me to focus when I'm doing that. And so... Japa is our most important thing. When we take our vows, our initiation vows, we make promises to not do four things, you know, the four regulative principles. But Japa is the only promise that we make to do. So it's very important um, that we honor that promise that we're making at that moment. And even if you're not initiated, that's the one thing that you're promising to do in order if you're seeking, you know, to take shelter under a spiritual master. Um, that's the one promise. And if you're not seeking to take, at this moment, uh, take shelter, then it's still important because you're still taking shelter under the holy name. And chanting just increases that re- relationship. You know, kirtan is wonderful, and I love kirtan. Um, such a great way to engage in chanting the holy name. But I liken a kirtan to, like, a big party. And it's, you've got lots of people there, you socialize, um, and you kind of have that relationship with Krishna in associating with him within a party. And japa is more like one-on-one when you're like, hey, let's go out and hang out, you know, uh, let's walk, when you meet a friend for lunch or coffee or, you know, they say coffee, but it just basically means we're meeting and maybe we're drinking some beverage together or not, but it's just not a meal. Um, let's meet each other for a walk in the park, and you have more of this 
one-on-one time where you can really get to know the other person. And that's what japa is in comparison to kirtan. Both are wonderful, but that one-on-one is really when you get to know them and you learn about the other person and form that strong relationship. So I'll end there. What questions do you have for me? We've uh, agreed that we have to chant 16 rounds. I think most of the devotees here in Radhakali Chanji Dham have uh, accepted that reality in our lives and very dutifully carried out. It's um, the nature of, of of doing a duty that it's uh, a little, it can feel a little burdensome at times, you know. It's just like you have to go to your doctor's office. It's not always uh, as exciting as it is. As, as it you'd like it to be, but you still go, you know. And we may plow through our 16 rounds, you know, because we know we have to get this done. But we've heard about people like Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati. He chanted his, he was chanting uh, Japa to prepare himself for before his preaching mission. Uh, I was at this, in Mayapur, we went to the place where Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati sat and chanted uh, a 12-hour shift of rounds. It was like 108 rounds a day. So for somebody, like we also know about Haridas Thakur, how he would chant all all day long, chanting Japa, and they lived the Babaji's, and even the girl that was uh, hired to try to get Haridas Thakur to give up chanting, she ended up chanting, and then she became a, a great Vaishnavi that was chanting all day long. So we read about these people and hear about them. So we know that there must be something about, there must be ecstatic chanting where, where people actually look forward to, to, to the japa. They must, and for, to be able to chant all day long means you, you, you must have a higher taste. So how did we kind of break through the uh, desert of offensive chanting and come to the you know the, the unlimited nectar of of really relishing the holy name so much so that 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 it's not a big relief to get done with our rounds but we actually really like we like to just chant all day. So the question is. I'm just going to make sure I understand. How do we um, go from our chanting offensively as a duty to just spontaneous chanting out of love and just like we want to, getting that higher taste from it and going inoffensive chanting at that moment by chanting? (laughs) Um, That's the short answer. The long answer is there's a lot of things that go on subconsciously, consciously in our brains. And it comes down to something I've discussed before, is the the beliefs that we have. And it can be anything from what can be holding us back, can be 
you know, like I said, are in Arthas, but it could be thoughts, it could be traumas that we've experienced or things that we've seen and um, ideas that we may have. If You know, I know one that comes up for me is that if I'm too devoted, then I won't be able to connect with people. If I'm too, like, spiritual, then, you know, I, I won't be able to relate to people. And working through those kinds of beliefs and saying, okay, that's not true, and really embodying, like, it, I'll actually be able to relate even better with people. And looking at examples, like small Krishna Goswami, who was able to relate to almost everyone and really connect with people, um, even though, you know, he's chanting and you know, very highly elevated. So it's looking at those kinds of things that may have instilled beliefs in us about spiritual progress that may be in, in hindering us. It may be our own material attachments and desires. Like if, if I, um, if I get, you know, if I have a higher taste of chanting, then maybe I won't want to um, watch as much TV. So there's that attachment to watching TV, but there's also this fear of not wanting to watch TV. Um, so th- again, these are personal for me, but we all have these things. And so one, on one level, we can work on realizing what those things are. And on the other, it's focusing on the higher taste aspect of it and really like intentionally chanting japa that seeks out that higher taste. So when you're chanting, you could ask Krishna for that higher taste or ask to be somewhere on that rung, right? There's that... Um, I mean, I've heard Ritetra Swami say it. I don't know who originally said it, but he says that we want to have the desire to have the desire. And if we don't have the desire to have the desire, then we want to have the desire to have the desire to have the desire. And if we don't have the desire to have the desire to have the desire to see Krishna, then we want to have the desire to have that desire to have the desire. So it's like we want to be somewhere on that pathway of desiring to see Krishna and connect to Krishna. So it's really that, you know, you can be intentional about, okay, this is where I'm at. And again, we talk about honesty and authenticity of where you exactly are, you know, as a GPS counter, like you can't really know where you're going. You don't have right directions where you're going until you know where you're starting from. So if you know exactly where you are, you start to look at yourself and say, okay, this is what my desires are. This is why I'm so strongly attached then you can start to intentionally cut those strings, sever those ties of what's keeping you attached, and then chant more attentively or chant with love more spontaneously. I know when I have a particularly good, like very attentive japa session, like my lips just automatically continue chanting even after I put the beads down. And... Um, Sometimes it's because I have to engage in other activities that I stop. But otherwise, it, it does, like when you get into that moment of chanting, it feels, you know, you keep doing it, even after you put the beads down. Um, other ways is, you know, when you find your mind wandering, just, I mean, outside of Japa, you've done your 16 rounds, and during the day, you know, it's like there's that meme I think I've seen where it's like, I've done my 16 rounds, I can do any damn thing I want now. Um, for the rest of the day. And that's how sometimes we are. Like, we got it done. We're good. Now I can just go and do whatever. Um, and 
it's not, it's like that, but it's not like that. We've got our number done, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we've developed that spontaneous love for Krishna. So throughout the day, we can try to redirect our mind back to thinking about Krishna, about thinking about some of his pastimes, um, thinking about how we're serving him, how we can serve the Vaishnavas, how we can, you know, so it's like we can constantly redirect our mind. And if we're doing something where you're not needing to engage your mind, um, you know, in that activity, then it's easier to do. Like if, you, if I'm doing something tedious like cleaning, then it's easier to start focusing on that. If I'm doing something like problem solving or um, reading, then my mind is engaged. And at that moment, it's like if I'm starting to think about Krishna's stories and I'm not paying attention to things that I'm doing, if I'm problem solving or reading or something like that. So those are some ways that you can do that um, to work on chanting more attentively. There's a book uh, Mahatma has on Japa meditations, and it's really great. I love it. There's like, there are little short um, paragraphs, little short phrases that you can like just pick up the book. And what I like to do sometimes is just read one of his like quotes and it gets you into the mind of chanting and then I you know and then I put the book down and then I go and chant so it's like some affirmation phrase like I, one of the ones he taught us in one of the um japa workshops I've been to is I want to chant I get to chant you know I love to chant so it's like we're telling ourselves these things if you tell your mind something it starts to believe it so Instead of like, oh my God, I have to chant. I need to chant. You know, I've, I, I should chant. It doesn't sound pleasant. It's like, you know, a duty. But when you're like, I get to chant. Like, it's a privilege. It's an honor. Like, I want to chant. You know, so we have to say these things to our mind so that we start to believe them. And the more we say it, the more we believe it. And then, and that's how we slowly make that breakthrough. So, like I said, the short answer is to get to inattentive, to attentive chanting, offenseless chanting. You chant, whether you're chanting offensively or not. Um, and that's, that's the answer. Does that help? Thank you so much. Sarantara Srimad Bhagavatam ki.